The challenge is, is that we always want to swing from one end of the pendulum to the other. It's either all, you know, let's say military force or it's all diplomacy and money, but we're not going to completely commit to it. And I fear that's, the, that's going to happen in, in this issue about violence uh, and, and crime, is that we put so much emphasis on the policing angle, um, or, or the policing approach, that we forgot everything else, and now we're swinging back in the other as an overcorrection. Um, but that's not necessarily the best way either. I'm Essen Zafar. And welcome to another episode of Unfair Nation, the podcast that discusses our nation's rising inequity and social, political, and economic inequality, what it means for you, and what you can do about it. Every other week, well, not really every other week, it's been like a year, we interview one person to get their perspective on structural inequality, and today I'm joined by Arif Ali Khan, formerly of the LAPD and now at Tax Logics. To proponents of defunding the police, Arif Ali Khan says that police departments, as functional units, still have a unique role to play in our society. And to those who defend the police at all costs, he says that the police need to be reformed, perhaps significantly. This is a balanced and pragmatic approach that uh, may find limited traction in our current times, but it comes from a place of deep experience that Arif has as the former director of the Office of Constitutional Policing at the LAPD. And prior to that, roles he held as Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Homeland Security and as the Deputy Mayor of Los Angeles. So in this episode, we talked to Arif about body-worn cameras on police and how they are amazing but severely limited tools for encouraging good law enforcement behavior, and also what Arif thinks the future of policing looks like. He literally paints a picture of his, uh, the police department that he would want step by step. And it's a view we don't often hear, and I think his insider's perspective will be a valuable listen. And oh yeah, we're back. Uh, I know we haven't released episodes in a long time, but hopefully we'll start releasing episodes on a regular basis. So look for additional episodes we've recorded over the last few months, which I'll be putting out and which will be hitting your favorite podcast app very soon. Thanks, as always, for listening. So you you have been in essentially in law enforcement in some capacity for the vast majority of your professional career, right? Attorney, yes. your deputy mayor in Los Angeles. Then you served at uh, Homeland Security. I think we overlapped for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you came back to uh, LAPD where you were where you led issues around constitutional policing, so on and so forth. And now you've started TAC Logics, your own company that focuses on kind of law enforcement and tech body cam issues. We'll talk all about, uh, about all of that. But the question I wanted to ask you based on kind of the story you brought up is why, why isn't community engagement and community policing working? Why isn't it enough? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot to unpack in what you were talking about. But when you say why isn't it working, it all depends on what is your outcome measure that you're looking at? What does it mean that it's not working? A very legal answer. It's like well, it it's a legal answer. Let, let's say, but it's more of an analytical <laughs> answer because I, I get concerned when sometimes they somebody will say, "Well, this isn't working because nothing has changed." And I think in 
whether empirically, qualitatively, a lot has changed. I mean, there was a time when police officers, Los Angeles, for example, never talked to the community about anything. It was an us versus them mentality. They only talked to certain segments of the community, but not the ones who really needed to have the inclusiveness that any other neighborhood had within a large urban area. Uh, and I do think that the dialogue and the communication that's occurred within that particular uh, department and that city made a big difference because it's about mutual understanding. It's not just about um, the police department learning about the communities that it serves, but it's also the community learns about the human beings who are police officers and their strengths, their weaknesses, their, their, their dedication or their lack of dedication, whatever it may be. It's that human connection that I do think makes a difference. Now, will that alone change major social issues and policies? Of course not, it never has, but it's an essential component. And when you think how influential an individual contact is between um, a person in the community and, and a member of law enforcement, every contact does matter, every contact does count, and that dialogue really counts. I bet you, you can remember every single time you were stopped by the police, let's say for a traffic violation. You probably remember it vividly. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And my guess is most of them were not particularly negative interactions, but yet you probably, I mean, negative unless you got your ticket or had some other, but imagine if it was something that was unfair or you were treated rudely or disrespectfully, or maybe your mom or your dad or your brother that's a really powerful influence. And unfortunately, you know, policing is inherently a, neg a negative interaction. Nobody wants to be stopped by the police. Nobody wants to be a victim and have to report to the police. So when you can have a dialogue in a non-negative um, setting, even if it's about tough issues, that's a really important part of trying to gain understanding and uh, trying to address these very complex social issues. So you talk about how it's not enough, right? How dialogue is, is kind of part of the picture, it's not enough. If it's not enough, then what else is needed? I think there's a lot that's needed in terms of, well, I think there are systemic issues that go beyond race. Um, and in order to address these systemic issues, you have to have systemic change. So essentially, I think that we have expectations of what a police officer is, but yet don't have a system that can meet those expectations. And when I say we, I mean society. So for example, we expect all police officers to be professionals, meaning on day one, they're ready to um, exercise their powers that are granted mm -hmm. by our society to enforce the law fairly, right. to investigate, to solve problems, to critically think, and yes, to use force when it's necessary either to affect an arrest or defend themselves or someone else. But who do we get to put in those positions? We get 21-year-olds who have no life experience, who have no education other than maybe a GED or a high school education. And some do come in with collegiate education, but it doesn't matter what kind of collegiate education. And right. we put them in an academy at most for six months where most of the times they have to learn the technical skills of being a police officer, shooting, tactics, how to arrest somebody, how to drive a car, things that we normally, none of us 
have that experience before you go into policing and, and then give them a very rudimentary understanding of the, the complexities of the law, local, state, federal ordinances, constitutional law, how you apply it, and then expect them on day one to be able to go out there and exercise all those powers like a professional. I don't know about you, but I don't know about any profession in our society in which they have to use their discretion to make very consequential decisions that has no education requirements, that just expects that you can do at the age of 21, and all you need is six months of training. Now, mind you, six months is a long time. There are states in the United States where it's four months and half of it is online. So there when you're talking six months, you're talking California? You're talking California. LA, yeah. California typically has six months. LAPD has six months, one of the best academies uh, in the world. But even then, I don't know, you cannot, you cannot teach a person judgment, critical thinking, problem solving in six months of an academy when you have to do so many other things. And then we're surprised when you know, many of these officers don't make good decisions when they're in the field under very stressful circumstances. So my, my issue about systemic solutions to this is that if we expect policing to be a profession, if we expect that officers act professionally and exercise the discretion like we would other professions, like a doctor, an engineer, a teacher, a lawyer, a dentist, um, then we need to have those requirements. We need to resource that. We need to design a legal system around that. And we are far, far from it. Um, and to some extent, I agree with this, your statement, right? So I think that education requirements need to increase for uh, incoming police officers. I've trained police officers and so on and so forth. And I've seen their limited understanding of constitutional issues and so on and so forth. But the, the argument, um, and I'm assuming there's more to your position, right? I mean, yeah. you, you worked on these issues for a long, long time. You're an expert on these issues. But um, one of the components is that, yes, there's a training issue. But with police officers, uh, especially when it relates to the death of Black Americans in the United States, mm -hmm. in many cases, they've had years of on-the-ground training. Sure, they didn't get the kind of academy training coming in. Maybe they didn't have the collegiate education, so on and so forth. But they've had on the ground training, right, for many, many years. Um, and so, what part does you know bias, racism play in this? Sure, and 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 you're right. There is more to what what I'm suggesting, especially when it comes to being a profession. Education is just one part of professionalism and being and having being a profession. And training is different than education. I, I think it's important to make that distinction. And That's I don't true, think yeah. you cannot train yourself. We, we cannot train our way out of some of these issues. But another important part of professionalism is accountability. And there are accountability mechanisms for all the professions I just named, whether it's the state bar, whether it's professional standards that are statewide, whether it's investigations, you know, licensing, decertification, or losing your bar exam, you know, medical profession is the same thing. Uh, there's a whole system to sort of maintain the professionalism and protect the, the public. There are 18,000 police departments in the United States. That's the nature of our history. Um, and then in each of the 50 states have very different certification or not even, or no certification requirements. There's not a profession 
And then, and then you look at disciplinary systems, disciplinary processes. Not only do they vary among the 50 states, they vary among all the agencies. Every agency has a different um, disciplinary standard or different process. Uh, there's no uniformity in it. And so that is a huge element of one, being able to uh, make sure that professionalism is there that, that goes beyond, well beyond training and education. So I think that's a, a large part of it. The, the other thing too, I mean, racism exists in America. It exists in policing. Um, I do think there's a difference in, in terms of what has changed in terms of racism. I do think that many agencies, not all, like I said, there are 18,000 police departments that are very, very different all throughout the country. The sort of explicit overt type of, of racism, uh, I think has changed. There, there are many more consequences um, and especially as younger and younger generations come in. But the impact of, of certain programs is, is, is there, you know, sort of that disparate impact difference, you know, from the constitutional analysis point of view. But I think that's an important distinction because the disparate impact may not be intentional. It may be a consequence of the way the system is and that needs to change. But I do think that when it comes to explicit bias and racism um, and that type of disparate treatment, uh, there are a lot more mechanisms in place to deal with that than there were before. Now that doesn't mean that it's certainly been eradicated, but I also think there's systemic issues in how we do hiring. Um, when they interviewed you, they looked for your aptitude. They looked for your credentials. They looked for your achievement to hire you in for that position. That's not how policing works. Policing is more about screening candidates out than screening them in. What are the minimum qualifications? And then can we take you and train you to be a police officer in, in the academy and how to do it within that department? That's not the best way to get the best people into those jobs who have all of these requirements, all these skills that we need and expect, whether, expect, whether it's empathy, whether it's legal understanding, whether it's communication skills, you know, the numerous things we want and deserve, just to get to your point. And so how do we screen for implicit bias? How do we screen for these other issues? It's very difficult um, to do. And, and what you'll also find is background investigations are not as thorough as you would think they are, certainly in some smaller departments, which is why they hire people who were fired someplace else. And so that's a huge problem about just the way we try to hire police officers uh, by pretty much trying to screen people out who we can tell wouldn't be good. But are we screening in the people who we think would be really good to be police officers? In most departments, I don't think that's the case, unfortunately. What about the problem, which you know you and I know about because we've worked in this area, but what about the problem of kind of the society, the culture of policing internally that may prevent these accountability mechanisms from being effective. You know, so for instance, you know, being a cop is kind of part of your part of this society, right? And so part of accountability is sharing, you know, bad behavior, dangerous behavior, instances of bias or racism about your fellow officers. Right. And doing that is a massive risk. It's a risk for your career. It's a risk for your future career. Right. And especially in that department, isn't accountability hampered by this kind of cultural um, 
circling of the wagons. Yeah, and you know, and this doesn't exist in the same way. I mean, it exists in every workplace, right? But there's something different about being a cop, right? You're kind of protecting your your other cops back and they have to trust you. And part of that trust may mean looking the other way, especially if you're a cop of color, right? Especially if you're a black cop and so on and so mm -hmm. forth, or a woman, for instance, right? Because you're you're feeling like you're already part of a minority in in a police department, most of which around the country are majority white police departments. So I'm always going to come back to this because I think it's important. And it may sound like the lawyerly analytical answer, but I think it's important because you can't solve problems unless you analyze and understand what you're dealing with. And, and I come back to this issue about 18,000 police departments. We often want to say there's a police culture. Police officers think this way. They want to do this way. And I actually deal with this even within the police world where I'm working with other departments or even internally when I worked at LAPD and with other departments. Well, cops only like this. Cops only like that. And I said that, you know, cops are not all the same. They all think very differently. They are individuals. Now, there may be certain things that are in common among a group or a large group, but they are very different. So on this issue of cops looking the other way or protecting each other or the thin blue line, you know, the, 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 the code of silence, those types of things, that certainly exists in various places. There's no doubt. But I do think it's not the same it was before. I mean, look at just look at the Derek Chauvin case. There were seven or eight Minneapolis police officers and command staff who testified for the prosecution against him, who were clearly um, not uh, approving or, or, or basically uh, saying that he committed a murder. Um, that's, that's kind of unheard of. I mean, I think that's, I can't think of another case where you had something. But let me, like let me interject really quick, right? Sure. I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not, to, no, no, not defending cops, of course, or anything like that in this case, but devil's advocate, isn't that unheard of? Because what happened with George Floyd and the uproar that it caused and the protests that happened around the country was also unheard of, right? Didn't that give enough cover to cops to say like, at this point, if I come out and say something, I mean, who's gonna hold me accountable? I mean, like this is nationwide now, everybody's on my side in broader society, right? And so it's kind of an example that may, is that still happening in, you know, in your opinion in police departments, smaller police departments, places where there hasn't been as much attention that's been paid. Sure, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the police in that situation or other situations are thinking as strategically as you are in terms of that. Certainly, there's no doubt that the the, the public outrage, understandable outrage, I'm sure played into it. But I have to tell you, and you'll hear this from a lot of people. I I can't. I don't know of one police officer I've talked to or a police official, and I've talked to hundreds and maybe even thousands since it happened who even once tried to defend it. Now, I'm old enough to remember the Rodney King incident. I was in law school at the time. Um, there were a lot of cops who were defending what happened then. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I was involved with the prosecution, but I know some of the prosecutors in the federal system, and they had to bring officers into the grand jury to secure their testimony, which is a fairly common yeah. tactic of witnesses that you want to call as prosecution witnesses, not even, not, we're not talking about defendants, but just to, to testify about what they saw, you have to call them into the grand jury and lock them in under oath because you're concerned that they won't testify in the same way later on. I'm not sure, I, I don't know what happened in the Chauvin case, they have a different system, but that's not happening as much as you would think. And then just internally, um, there are numerous cases of 
issues that we have found out at LAPD that were reported by other officers. It is much more common for other officers to say, hey, I'm not involved with that, or to be um, calling out misconduct when they see it. Um, is it enough? And is it certainly throughout the country enough? No, of course not. But it's not the same as it used to be. And I think there is a realization among many that not only is it important for, for the profession, but it's important for that officer as an individual. And, and you know, let me just say, but here's the, the thing that has to be in place. Departments have to make it easier for officers like that to step forward. They have to make it available to give an anonymous complaint or protect them against retaliation or not discourage that. Um, they can't create disincentives to that. And some departments do just as they have disincentives to taking even um, citizen complaints. Um, the system has to enable the behavior that, that you want, which is for officers to hold each other accountable as well. And if they don't have that, obviously that's another systemic problem. So you talked about accountability, right? Accountability is kind of an old school system or method of you know, self-policing right? Like accountability mechanisms, right? Like complaints, for instance, other accountability mechanisms that are kind of more new tech, which is kind of fast becoming one of your areas of expertise uh, that have been enabled by miniaturization and equipment and so on and so forth are body-worn cameras, right? But you're, you have been working on these issues at LAPD and law enforcement in general. You've started TACLogics to kind of think about and consult on these issues as body-worn cameras are becoming more ubiquitous around the country for law enforcement. What are your thoughts on that mechanism, right? Like what are some of the advantages of body-worn cameras? We've seen some, right? I mean, the fact that uh, we have now a footage, right? But what are also the pitfalls of body-worn cameras, both for mm -hmm. community members that may rely on them for reporting of uh, improper use of force incidents, but also on police departments that may rely on them for accountability measures? Yeah, no, I think it's an, I mean, body-worn cameras and technology, um, which is advancing, of course, you know, continues to advance at pretty fast speeds. I mean, it's, it's sort of the natural evolution that's been going on in law enforcement for a long time. I mean, even the audio recording of interrogations was something new or the VHS reporting, uh, recording of interrogations. Right. Mm -hmm. That was a technological advancement that helped in both holding officers accountable for not using coercive technique, coercive techniques. And it was also an evidentiary basis to you know, secure convictions. Um, dash cams have been around for a very long time. Um, in a department I worked for in college, uh, in Newport Beach Police Department uh, here in California, uh, they had VHS. Uh, they had VHS tapes that they would insert, and that's what they were recording their car stops on. And once again, that was a both an accountability measure and also an evidentiary measure uh, to do that. Body cams is a is an important evolution to just making sure that they're on the officer's body and they can capture audio, video, and other evidence to do that. So it, 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 it shouldn't be surprising that it's been moving that way, um, but it's definitely an important tool, one of many. I think the issue with uh, many of the technological advances is that departments and the public don't think about the entire environment, the context in which it has to operate. I mean, that's what my uh, my partners, Maggie Goodrich, Dan Gomez, and I do 
is we help integrate that technology, not just into the computer systems, the technical infrastructure, but thinking about the policies, thinking about the community expectations, the legal issues, the training, the operations, so that you're actually maximizing its use, but using that technology in a constitutional way, in a way that isn't just a sort of check the box, look, we have body cameras, just trust us type of thing. So I think it's how that technology is going to be effective is how it's used in the entire ecosystem in that context. I mean, you're seeing examples right now of departments who are, are disclosing the body camera footage, sometimes just raw, sometimes, which I believe that is, is an obligation, which is in context as a way to inform people with the other information you need to understand what happened. And then some aren't at all. In North Carolina, for example, as you know, there's a major controversy about that. And I don't think a lot of people realize they cannot do it because the state law prohibits them from doing it. Um, that's going to create a lot of issues. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, if there is a legitimate ongoing criminal investigation and the release would seriously compromise that, I would never want to compromise that because the best form of accountability of a criminal act is a criminal prosecution and conviction. But as a, as a matter, of, matter of course you can't do it, then that's, that's problematic because you have the technology, but then to what effect are you using it in a, in a fair and appropriate manner? Uh, and I think when it comes to body camera footage, uh, you know, my analogy that I use a lot is you have to be careful because it's like watching a baseball game through a straw. You're, you're watching the pitcher pitch and he, or if it's my daughter plays softball, so I'm always thinking in softball terms, if she pitches a fastball, how do you know it's the right pitch? When you don't know who's at bat, you don't know how many balls or how many outs, you don't know if anybody's on first, you don't know the score. Um, all you're seeing is the, the pitch um, and making a judgment about was that the right thing under the circumstances is really impossible. So why the context is so important. Um, but I think it's, it's a lot of these other issues. It's not the technology itself that I think have been falling short and people haven't thought through them. Um, and it, that's so important if you want to use them for their intended purposes. Is there a way to expand the use of body cameras? Is there a technological way to add that context? We have dash cams, you have body cams, like what else can we do to create a whole of situation reporting system? That's driven by tech. So I think, you know, the first thing is, you know, one of the, here's one of the situations, you know, body cam is usually not, there's not usually just one. I mean, most of the times you'll see there are multiple body cameras that are at the location because you have multiple officers, right. especially if it's a standoff with somebody who's armed or a negotiation or different things. So one of the complexities is you have multiple video feeds. points of view. Yeah. yeah, and different points of view. And as you know, one point of view could see things differently than the other. And being able to put those together are very important. Um, and I know different companies are working at ways to make that easier because most of the time this has to be done in-house. But it's, it's, I, I don't know technologically, um, the, the, the issue is bringing all the information together and that includes what was the what was the radio transmissions that the officers received on their way? What was the 911 call? Mm -hmm. That's why if you look at departments, you know, when I was at LAPD, we started releasing these critical incident community briefings, which were really briefings that put the whole thing in context in as objective a way as possible. But it included all of these other things so that you knew 
as much as we knew um, what happened and most importantly, why. It's available to the community, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Release, this, yeah. this was released, the 911 call, the, uh, the video, the audio, um, <laughs> the translation, as I call it, as cops are using jargon and different codes, um, the location. Right. Um, explaining to them how a body camera works, what is a taser, what is a beanbag shotgun, um, and making no judgment about it in terms of whether it was appropriate or not, because we wait till the entire investigation is done, but using it as an opportunity to educate the public a little bit more to promote that mutual understanding and understand the sort of context and then make whatever opinion they, they want to. But um, I think as we, as we get more and more technology putting that all together in a way that's understandable for the department doing its investigation and the public is going to be the real challenge. So, so I have two overarching kind of questions for you based on everything you've said, right? The first, second is kind of aspirational, totally your opinion. I'll ask you to imagine something. But in the first, let me ask you, like, we are still, you and I, as we're asking these questions, are still living in a, a the current system of policing one in which lethal weapons exist and are used, let's say, both by perpetrators of a crime and the police. Increasingly, we are hearing about um, efforts to defund the police, recreate police departments in an image that is perhaps less uh, force-oriented. As you recently saw, our old department created a new bureau to tackle violent extremism that's based on a public health model. Right. What are your thoughts on 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 that? Right. Like what are your San Francisco, for instance, you, you know, this probably better than I do, is working to transition law enforcement officers towards a kind of more community engagement led model. They, they aren't armed, for instance, um, in certain cities like Berkeley, they may not be armed at all. Um, does that model work? Is that is there a future for this kind of model or is it limited by the, the nature of the of the country that we live in? Well, I think in some of the agencies and some of the cities where they're sort of taking away these responsibilities to respond to certain types of calls and giving them to people simply because they're unarmed. I mean, that's the experiment we're gonna engage on. I can tell you, I think in most departments, they, you know, like the LAPD, Chicago and elsewhere, Police officers aren't called to a mental health call because somebody is just sad or depressed or having anxiety. Mm -hmm. They're called because the person is exhibiting violent behavior either against themselves or someone else. And I'm still unclear how these other dispatch government personnel are going to deal with somebody who is either been violent, is being violent or is about to be violent. Um, are there other ways to approach it? Certainly. But really, that all comes before that crisis moment when the police are called. And I'm, I'm a strong believer. I worked a lot on gang um, violence and violence reduction in Los Angeles. Um, that it's so much more important to try to prevent that from happening in the first place. And that prevention, whether it's through a public health model or other preventative model, is really important. And you know, we're talking about defunding the police, and we know most people are not in favor of doing so. I often think that that's just a, a response to the frustration of not seeing meaningful changes in many uh, police relationships and police actions, because, and we can get into this in, in a few minutes, but 
because of what I call this endless loop of reform that's not hitting the systemic issues. But um, we've defunded education. We've defunded mental health services. We've defunded homelessness services for the last 30, 40, 50 right. years. Yep. So defunding the police is sort of that last resort. Then what are we doing? Um, and so I think that this investment in prevention services, real mental health education are, is critical. But unfortunately, there are, it's going to take a while for that to be able to be in place and be effective. But when things hit at a crisis level, when somebody is going to be violent and, um, and, and is going to hurt someone or has to be taken into custody because they committed a crime, whatever it may be, I don't see a substitute for some agency of the government who's empowered and expected to um, enforce the law and when necessary use force to apprehend somebody or to defend the life of themselves or someone else. I don't see how that can be substituted when it reaches that level. I think the big thing that's happened, especially post Ferguson, is this emphasis on de-escalation before it gets to the level where deadly force is necessary. I think there's a, there's a misimpression that if, if, if you're at the deadly force level that you can somehow de-escalate it from that. I have a very narrow view of what constitutes a uh, imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury that necessitates deadly force. But I think what's been good is teaching officers how to slow things down, diffuse the situation so it doesn't elevate to that level and you can de-escalate it down or not to escalate it in the first place. But I, it's very difficult to see how with the lack of uh, social services, mental health services, mental health treatment, um, that we're not gonna reach these crisis situations where the police are really the only, um, they have to be a part of the response because it's an emergency. Um, now, some departments are doing co-responders. LAPD's done that for quite some time where they have a mental health professional. But even in those situations, and in, in order to do that, given the volume and the 24-7 and all of those things, very yeah. difficult. But even and in those- expensive. Very expensive. And you know, quite frankly, I don't think there are a lot of mental health professionals who want to work um, those types of hours. Um, you know, that's right. it. I mean- I'm a lawyer. I don't want to work those types of hours. It's very difficult. It's not that easy. Um, so I just hope we have realistic expectations that um, simply taking, you know, having somebody who's unarmed is not necessarily going to address the deeper issues we have with people who are suffering from mental illness or homelessness or, or suffering a crisis and need help. Um, and training the officers to deal with those situations is still going to be a very important and ongoing effort. Right. And, and, and as we increase, let's say, if there's a movement to increase public health funding, funding for mental illness, funding for even things like homelessness and so on and so forth, that leads to a reduction in the need for police and perhaps a reduction in the size of police forces, right, which is what a lot of reformers are, are looking for to begin with. And, and I, so, I think, I'm sorry, that's a, that's, it's, it's a very important and a good idea. I think the problem has been, like in California, where they have decriminalized quite a few things, they, um, the realignment in the prisons, all of those things. It, it reminds me of back with the deinstitutionalization of mental health hospitals, where 
they deinstitutionalized it, um, but they never put the money for um, outpatient uh, mental health care. And they haven't done that in California in, in helping with the other social services that we need from the reduced costs of incarceration. That has to be a commitment. And I think also you have to see the evidence of that before you start taking the money away from the police departments, because I think what's often mistaken is this impression because police departments do constitute the largest budgets in a city or a county um, in the vast majority of jurisdictions. But why is that? It's a function of the number of people, not because they're getting a bunch of extra stuff. 95% um, of LAPD's budget uh, is all labor cost. Um, that's 5% for buildings, cars, uniforms, ammunition, training. It's not that much. It's 95%. And that 95% budget is totally out of the control of the, the chief and the entire executives. That's all done with the city council. Um, I think there are good arguments, in, in my opinion, that the way that labor money is spent isn't always the best way to to get performance because they tend to be for bonuses that really don't help the organization. But the idea that there's this huge amount of money that they get that can just be reallocated would make it very difficult for them to even do the basic services that we were still going to expect police officers to do. The, the, what I was thinking when you were talking about that is how we, we as the United States also end wars, right? We decide that we are now going to end this massive operation 20 years in Afghanistan, we're just gonna come back. And we've done this for decades, right? Most of American, modern American history is we don't provide any kind of services uh, that are left in place. And we say use of force is now ended. We're gonna draw down the aggressive force modifier, let's say the military and we're not gonna leave anything in its place, which may cost sometimes more than the war, which is what we don't understand, right? Like that is an ongoing commitment that may cost way more than the billions we spend on the use of force, right? right. Um, <clears throat> and it's a problem that just doesn't disappear because we say we're gonna leave and we're still gonna be committed. Uh, it, it's gonna be costly either way. I think what the, 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 the challenge is, is that we always wanna swing from one end of the pendulum to the other. It's either all, you know, let's say military force, or it's all diplomacy and money, but we're not going to completely commit to it. And I fear that's the, that's going to happen in, in this issue about violence uh, and, and crime, is that we put so much emphasis on the policing angle, um, or, or the policing approach, that we forgot everything else, and now we're swinging back in the other as an overcorrection. Um, but that's not necessarily the best way either. I, I just wish from a public policy perspective, we could, we could uh, focus on balance <laughs> and uh, recognize that, that, yeah. that it's not, this is not a binary situation. It's a complex situation that takes different approaches at different magnitudes and a, a coordinated commitment. Yeah, and there's lots of de-incentives in place, right? I mean, you know, we have a political system and so on and so forth that encourages, you know, responses to opinion. And so there's lots of disincentives in place to allow for any kind of balanced approach, right? Or even On the balanced, issues. right, absolutely. And, and even just the balanced discussion that we're trying to have and we're having, I believe, um, you know, you see so much. And I, I, I say this often um, to everybody that, the polarization about the issue of policing is doing no one any good. 
You cannot have a, a discussion where it's either you defund the police, you're in favor of defunding the police, or you defend the police at all costs. Um, because no, nothing meaningfully will change if that's the only two positions that you can take. So then let me ask you this. That's a great uh, segue. I appreciate you helping me with the segues, by the way. You're doing great. Anytime. You get me right to my next question. So, <laughs> uh, so let's take balance, right, as kind of your end point. And I'll ask you my last question, which is, all right, you have lots of resources, perhaps not unlimited, but lots of resources. You have a city that you have, you know, you're the mayor and the chief of police, you know, so you're a little bit of a dictator now, Arif in your own city, whatever city, let's say it's LA, right? And you have a mandate from the people, right? Of some kind, you've been elected with this mandate and you get to build the police department that you want, right? In present times, starting next week, what does that police department look like? How is it different from the police departments that exist today? What problems does it solve? What things does it keep the same? Can you paint a picture for everybody who's listening as to what that looks like uh, based oh, on your experience? Sure, sure. Well, I'll tell you what first, what I think the police department, what, what ideal police department I would want, but also how it would exist within the ecosystem of a government. No police department operates independently of everything else mm -hmm. and cannot be successful without um, the, the partnerships with everybody else in city and county governments. But I mean, first it would start with the people. Who are we bringing in to be police officers? I would want them and I would want to be able to attract people who see it as a noble profession, who see it as the opportunity to help people save lives, protect property, and help the community, which is what I think most police officers go into policing to do. But I would also want to see that they are accomplished, they have achievement. They have an educational foundation that would enable them to critically think, to problem solve, because policing at its core is about solving problems, whether it's solving a crime or solving a dispute or solving um, a situation where a person has a knife or a gun. It's about solving problems and their ability to critically think under very difficult circumstances is, criti is, is critical, but I mean, uh, it is just so important because then they can exercise good judgment. That's what you want in any position of trust, whether it's a judge, a lawyer, a doctor, whomever it is, but especially a police officer, somebody who can exercise excellent judgment, to, which is essentially doing the right thing at the right time for the right reason. So how do you do that? You pay them well, um, you pay them a wage so that they are not completely dependent on the payout or the expectation of a payout after 30 years in a pension system. Police departments use an organizational model that does not exist in any other industry or sector of, of the American economy. Um, and so that we expect to take 21 year old and they have to commit to stay in a department for 30 years, even though policing may not be for them and they realize it after a few years because they wanna get that pension and those benefits and all the things that make the job attractive in the first place. You pay them well, you have educational standards, but you also have programs like the US military to give a pathway to people to get an education. And that's so important because you wanna make sure that the department is diverse, diverse racially, ethnically, gender experience, because 
ultimately that diversity is not simply a, a an image issue it is a you want diversity of thought once again why because police officers solve problems and you want people who have different ways of thinking so they can think about it critically and come up with innovative solutions so you have programs like scholarship programs for people to go get their education and maybe make a commitment to be a police officer for four or five years. You have programs to get officers who go into the academy or in, you know, restore the opportunities for them to get a college education that's focused on the core concepts you need to know to be a police officer, like the law, like maybe history and understanding the, the United States and the constitution and, and um, psychology, sociology, so many disciplines that are just basic disciplines that are so critical to being a professional police officer. I would make sure we had, and this goes beyond, but you have to have standards, you have to have performance standards and the ability to hold people accountable in a fair and transparent way. I would want to have enough training. I would want to have enough technology, basic technology. Um, you know, there's so many departments that don't even have email. There are departments in the country, wow. ma major departments in the country that don't have the ability to enter their reports into um, a computer at their stations and have to take them physically to be entered into at their main station. It, you, would be, you would be surprised at how antiquated the basic technology and infrastructure is in most departments. So I'd wanna be able to have that. I'd wanna have enough money and resources so that I can have officers travel and leaders travel. Why? I want them to get out of my department and go learn what it's like in another department and see different ideas and different approaches so we can evolve and innovate and adapt. And the fourth thing is I would wanna have enough officers so that we have enough time, time to develop relationships with the community, to develop partnerships with our other government entities, to develop, have time to do these other things other than just responding to 911 calls, to do good investigations of uses of force, to do thorough investigations of a complaint from a citizen. That all takes time and money. Community policing is very expensive because it requires you to take the time to have those positive contacts that are non-law enforcement, to do the youth programs, to do the education programs. That takes time. And I believe that you know, I, I work a lot with uh, police chiefs all throughout the country. And the ones, who, I, I, the difference between the crop of chiefs today and, and maybe from 20 or 30 years ago is they would all say that the things they need are more training, technology, travel, and time, just what I'm talking about. But what are the first things that are cut from every police department? Four T's, four, four T's. T's, there it is. That's part because, of your next talk. Right, <laughs> and, 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 and that's why um, and, and there's a political reason for that. Pol uh, you know, political leaders don't get reelected by funding those four things. They do it by getting more police officers or some shiny new vehicle. But those are the four infrastructure essentials for a, a, an organization to do all the things that we want and expect. So sort of in a nutshell, those are the things that I would think about that would make, yeah. an, uh, would make the police department that I would want to have in my community. Yeah, and that's and that's a great vision to hear, right? And to take us out. I mean, one thing I will add to that is you also need taxes. That would be my fifth T, right? Because none of that gets funded unless there's some money for it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And that and the the revenue that comes in. I mean, the other aspect of that, since we're talking about money, is where does it go 
when you have that one point five or six billion dollar budget for a police department of thirteen thousand personnel, you know, and like I said, ninety five percent of it goes to budget. And how does that happen? It's the chief doesn't create a budget. In fact, the chief doesn't even have control of the budget. Um, it happens because the political leaders make negotiate with the unions and unions do what unions are supposed to do. They advocate zealously for uh, the interests of their membership. But how does that work? I mean, it, there are all sorts of just strange bonuses that are put in there. For example, um, LAPD and many other departments pay a patrol bonus or a uniform bonus, meaning if you're in a uniform assignment, you get a bonus. Okay, a uniform assignment in patrol, you get a bonus. Well, isn't that what police work is? Isn't that what two thirds of the workforce is doing? Yeah. Um, they have bonuses for specialized units that there's never been a shortage of police officers who wanted to do that job. It's not created as an incentive to get the behavior you want. It's sometimes just right. a reward for being in those right. positions. I mean, is there a de-escalation bonus? No, <laughs> no. Right. There's a right. So maybe that's part. That's part of it too, right? Is there an education bonus? Sometimes, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there are certain um, departments like LAPD, and I think this is a good thing because they don't have a mandate. But if you have a bachelor's degree or certain college credits, when you get hired, you, you are at a higher step. And then to promote, you have to have certain college credits because they create incentives because they recognize right. the importance of that. But some of the bonuses that are negotiated, in, in, in large ways, they're just a way to hide that they're not reflected in the cost of living increases, just what the public uh, pays attention to. These other bonuses um, that nobody really knows, or they're sort of under the, right. not under the table, they're explicit in the agreements, but there are ways to kind of hide these benefits that they get. Um, now, I'm not saying police officers don't deserve to be paid, but it should be in a manner in which you are incentivizing type of police officer and the type of organization that you want and that you value. And yeah. these, the, you, you talked about disincentives. Well, if I can get, just go back to one, one thing that you mentioned that's tied sure. into this, you had asked about culture, right? And how do you change the police culture? Mm -hmm. You know, organizations develop cultures in themselves, but this is a problem I think throughout government. And, and, and I think you'll relate to this example. In government, we often say, this is what we want to do. Um, but then you create a system that makes it incredibly difficult to do it. Here's the best example that exists in every organization, budgeting. When you're in the government, you know, there's always the talk of we need to be good stewards of the taxpayer's money. We need to be um, efficient. We need to be, of course, effective, but we shouldn't waste money. We shouldn't do anything. I know exactly where you're going. Okay. So you have a $10,000 office supplies budget. It's one month from the end of the fiscal year and you have done what you were told to do, which is save money. <laughs> and let's say you did such a good job, you saved half of your office supplies budget and there's You've one month left, job. okay? <laughs> one month left. What are you going to do when you you're find out- burn what? You're gonna you're burn gonna it as soon as every, possible. Every yeah. single penny. Now, are you somebody who's just trying to be wasteful or anything? Of course not. Why are you going to spend every every penny? You, you want the same amount next year, right? right? So if it looks like you didn't spend that money, then you're going to get less because well, it looks like you need less. Well, first, you're not going to get to keep that money for the, it's not going to carry over. That's right. You either use it over. or you lose it. 
And then they penalize you even further by what you said. Then they'll cut your budget next year. Right. Terrible, terrible incentive. Right. And then they're shocked that every year, you know, there's nothing left or money is spent like that. It just creates these sort of perverse disincentives for exactly the behavior you want. Uh, and, and so those, I mean, there are millions of examples of that throughout. So the same thing has to be in policing is that we have to create the incentives to have the people you want that we're paying, you know, if you're going to use money as an incentive to promote those types of uh, that type of behavior. Um, if you're going to promote people, it's because they are uh, exhibiting the type of performance and the, the skills and capabilities that you want, not just simply based on seniority, which is typically what rules sort of the roost in terms of who gets promoted first or who can get an upgrade first or who can get their schedule um, has priority. It's all based on how long you've been there. Those are the systemic things that need to change. So you don't have these disincentives for the behaviors that you want. Well, Arif, it was really good to have you on the podcast. It's good to see you again. I'm glad we're now living in the same city. This is what we tend to do. Went from LA to DC, and now I'm back in LA following you. Which is great. Uh, maybe we I think can it's really you... the weather. It's really about the weather. It's, but... it's really the weather. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, well, the traffic is back in LA, which is a problem after post-COVID. It looks like all the cars are back on the road. <laughs> but listen, I, I would love to have you back on uh, you know, later in the year to do maybe a follow-up, mm -hmm. but deeply appreciate you being on and, and uh, would love to have you back on again. Thanks a lot. Essen, Essen uh, my pleasure. You, you, you're doing great work with this. It's so great to see you having these important discussions and that people are out there uh, learning from you and learning from everybody you're bringing on. And if I can help in the future, never hesitate to ask. Hey, thanks for listening to another episode of Unfair Nation. As I mentioned in the introduction, we're back. We have a lot of episodes in the hopper. I have, don't have any idea why we use that term, but we do have episodes in the hopper, which we'll be editing and releasing very soon. So thanks again for listening and stay tuned. That's definitely going in the podcast. No, no, don't. You put that in, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs>